All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we're jumping into a new series. Um, James, I went to grab another stand because this one was wobbly, but uh, this one doesn't adjust. So got a couple here. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to start this, this series with you guys. And the book of James, especially chapter one, has actually been a, a, a chapter that's been very impactful for me since I was saved. That when I was first saved, I came home on a um, spring break and my mom had always been big on memorizing scripture. And so we memorized um, chapter one together um, over spring break. And so this has been a chapter I've had memorized and been very impactful for me. And part of the challenge um, for us as a church going into this series, we're going to be in the book of James for eight weeks. And I challenge you all um, to memorize not the whole chapter, but at least the first eight verses um, of chapter one. So that'd be one verse a week and you'll have the first first eight verses memorized of chapter one. It's a very powerful scripture. And um, yeah, the word says to hide the word in our heart. And if you don't think you can memorize it, I know you can. Because in my family, um, memorization comes a little bit easier for my, myself and my mom. But um, my dad, it's a little bit harder for him, but he still does it. And he still has scripture memorized and you can talk to him about that. So I know memorization comes a little easier for some than others, but everyone can do it um, if we commit to it. So this is a, a very fun scripture for me. And and um, last time I preached, I did this and wanted to do this again, but there's a little homework assignment or extra studying if you'd like this um, at the front of the, the sanctuary as you're heading out. But just give some um, context of who the author is, the context of, of James as a whole, some of the themes that are in this book, as well as some things that you guys can study that go along with what we are going to break down today. And so the book of James is written by James, but this is not the disciple James that maybe you're familiar with in the Gospels, but this is the half-brother of James. I mean, Sorry, the half-brother of Jesus, James, um, who his uh, mother Mary and father Joseph and grew up with Jesus. And while he grew up with Jesus, he did not believe um, that Jesus was the Messiah. James did not, was not a disciple of Christ during his life. But later, after the resurrection of Jesus, James became a follower and a believer in who Jesus was. So this is actually a very powerful book because when you talk about was Jesus the Messiah, nobody wants to admit you're brother is the Messiah. And so the fact that James, after the resurrection of Jesus, um, was actually ended up being martyred, being stoned to death um, by order of the high priest um, later on in his life, witnessing that Jesus was the Messiah. So that is who's writing this book. Um, this was actually the first book of the New Testament as far as when it was written, um, around 45 AD. So it's an early um, letter for us here in the scriptures. Some people call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's very practical, straightforward, gives us a lot of good information in how to live our lives. But part of the context of this scripture is the church in Jerusalem was under heavy persecution. Um, the disciple James had just been beheaded um, by Herod had, under his order and that Peter had just been imprisoned and then was released by an angel, helped him get out of, out of prison and then Herod had ordered anyone who found Peter should kill him, that he should be put to death. So during this time, there was intense persecution in Jerusalem and James is writing to the church that had been scattered all over the region. They'd had to leave Jerusalem because of the per, uh, persecution of the church and you would think going under a lot of persecution, James would be writing with a lot of encouragement and trying to build them up, which he does on some level. But James is one of the most challenging books as far as obedience in the entire New Testament. That in the midst of the persecution, James talks about the, the importance of obedience and specifically the importance of faith. And our question today for all of us to consider is a very simple one, but really important is, do you trust God? And how do you know if you trust God? 
And we're gonna look in James chapter one that trusting God and knowing if we trust God isn't about intentions, but the fruit of our life will show whether or not we trust God. And specifically, we're gonna look at verses one through 18 in James chapter one and how trials and hardships really test and show us whether or not we trust in God or whether we are in fact trusting in ourselves. So if you open up to James chapter one, we're gonna read the first verse. That says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. The first thing I just want to look at here that I think is very important is the foundation of handling trials and temptations in our life is the way that James identifies himself in this letter. I think James could have said a lot of things. He ended up being the head elder in Jerusalem. He could have said, James, the senior pastor um, of Jerusalem, and I'm a servant of God. Or he could have said, James, I'm the brother of Jesus, and I'm writing you this letter. But instead, James identifies himself that, with something that requires a lot of humility, that G- James says um, he is a bondservant of God. And the Greek word for this is doulos, which literally means slave. If it's translated, um, it's actually interesting. You talk to a lot of Bible theologians, they didn't um, translate this word slave in the English language because we have a negative connotation of slavery um, in our country. But in fact, the more direct translation of this word is slave. James, a slave of God. And when we think of this word slave, sometimes we can feel like, oh man, is God really asking me to be his slave? And he is. But the good news is, is that we are slaves as Christians to a perfect master. When you're slaves to a not good master, man, that's bad news for the slave because he's gonna be treated poorly and his quality of life is gonna be low. But actually there is nothing better in this entire world than to be enslaved to a perfect master who actually has your best interest at heart and is doing everything within his will for your good. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is our life, especially when we're going through trials, focused on being a slave of Christ, meaning that our entire life is built around doing the will of God, or is our life built around our own comfort and our own happiness? Because contrary to sometimes popular belief, nowhere in the Bible that I have found does God promise that you'll be happy. He does promise joy. He promises contentment. But never in the Bible does Jesus say, I promise you'll be comfortable. I promise you'll be happy. Instead, he says, you will experience trials and tribulations in this world, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So we have the promise that we can have hope, but it starts with us being bond servants of humbling ourselves with this idea of my job on this earth is to be a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ and to be committed to his work. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, question, what is our identity? That's the number one step in seeing how we deal with trials and tribulations in our life. And um, again, this chapter was in my mind a lot when I was first saved um, in college. And I had a joke with, I had a few roommates who knew what the Bible said, but they weren't necessarily living what the Bible said. And they were always trying to get me to do things that I knew I shouldn't do now that I was a, a servant of Christ. And I had told them I was memorizing this chapter and, you know, we'd get in arguments or discussions on what we were going to do on the weekends or whatever. And so instead of arguing with them, I just, when they asked me, I started saying, um, I'm a bond servant. And it was kind of this little, uh, little quirky joke with our, with my friends, but it was something that I was proud of as I get to be a slave of Jesus Christ. I don't have to be, I don't, um, I'm not obligated to be, I'm not captured to be a slave of Jesus Christ, but I get to, by my own free will, submit myself to slavery to Jesus Christ. And because I'm doing that, 
I don't want to do those things. That there was a stance of my identity was now solely in Jesus Christ. And it just became the easy argument. They knew once I said that, the, the argument was over and they could kind of move on. But the truth is that we are slaves to something. We're either slaves to Jesus Christ or we are slaves to our own desires. And if you turn with me to Romans chapter 6, we see this truth played out. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. And he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we look at this scripture in James that he's gonna talk shortly, um, if you'll turn back there with me, about trials, about temptations, about hardship. But I really believe that it all begins with Where are we placing our identity? How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as somebody who's trying to do your best, have success, feel comfortable, do the things that you've always dreamed of doing? Or do you view yourself as a joyful, not obligated, but a joyfully committed slave to God to to fulfill his will? And he finishes this, this verse again to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, which again, he's just... Uh, referring to the the, uh, believers in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers who had been scattered because of the persecution. And now they're living, most of them, in pagan environments really for the first time. So in verse two, he continues and says, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So when we look at this scripture, the first thing I want to do is define um, what, is tri- what is a trial. And I'm not downplaying when we have a bad day at work or you have an argument with your spouse or you know, your dog dies or whatever it is. I mean, those things are real and they, they can make us feel bad. But what he's talking about in this, and if you study the Greek of this word trials, he's talking about back-breaking traumatic events that happen in your life. These things that happen in our life that when people look on the outside in, they're thinking, you know, how can you survive? How can you stay sane? How can you continue in joy when something that traumatic happens to you? So when he's saying, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, he's not talking about surface level pain. He's talking about the deep things in our life that make us suffer beyond what we could ever imagine. But yet in this, he's saying to count it all joy. Now this is a hard, I mean, this is a hard scripture to really think about. Why is he saying that we can have joy in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution? And nobody demonstrated this better than Jesus. And if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, we see an example 
of how Jesus demonstrates this. And because Jesus did it, we can do it. That Jesus says that greater is he who's in us, the Holy Spirit, than he who's in the world. That we have the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, we can also have joy in our trials. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's amazing to me about this scripture is it says the cross, this excruciating death and eternal payment that Jesus would pay for our sins, it says that was the joy set before Jesus. Now, how can the cross be joyful? How can that be a joyful thing for Jesus? Because ultimately he was doing what pleased God, that he was fulfilling the will of God. And the, Pastor John talked about the woman at the well during the Christmas service. And you know, when Jesus' disciples come back and they talk to Jesus um, and they're wondering if he had anything to eat, he says, my um, food is to do the will of the Father and to accomplish the work in which he has sent me to do. And so Jesus' joy on earth was not his comfortability, was not the things that he wanted to accomplish, but ultimately Jesus' joy came from fulfilling the word of God as a slave of the Father. If you turn with me to Philippians 2, um, this word slave, this word bondservant is actually used of Jesus and his example to us. So in Philippians chapter 2, if you guys want to turn there, it's in verse, chapter 2, verse 5. We are called to have the same mind and the same um, purpose that Jesus had. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or of a slave and coming in the likeness of a man and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we look at this scripture of finding joy in our trials, again, it comes back to our identity. Why, do, why, why are we here? And if we are not here for the sole purpose of being a slave for Jesus Christ, when those trials, when those temptations come that are meant to break us, they will break us because our own desire for our own comfort and for our own will um, we won't be able to sustain our desire for Christ at the same time. We're gonna talk about in a minute of being double-minded. And when we have two desires, a desire to serve ourselves and a desire to serve God, we can't be a slave. And, and, and unfortunately, we become unstable in all of our ways. But number two, not only does God promise that we can have joy through this example and power of Christ, but he also is promising us that we can build Christ-like character, that God's number one concern for you and I is to make us like Jesus. There's nothing that God cares about more in your life than conforming us into the image of his son. That's his number one goal. If you turn to Romans chapter five, this is, again, it gives us a really straightforward example, um, very similar to James one, of how these tribulations and trials make us more like Jesus. 
which is again why we can have joy. We can know as we trust God in the midst of trials, we're being made more like Christ. Romans chapter five, verse one, he says, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom was given to us. So the question for us is if we are slaves of Jesus Christ, we're content, we're joyful, we're excited about trials because we know these things are going to make us more like Jesus Christ. But if we are um, content or focused on our own happiness, our own comfort, our own plans, trials just get in the way because trials are gonna disrupt your comfort and your, and your happiness and your plans every time. No one has a trial come in their life and then everything still went as planned. These things disrupt our lives, but they can't disrupt us becoming more like Jesus Christ. And that's why we can have joy in the midst of it. And maturity is so important because how do we how we handle accountability within sin is dependent upon how mature we are. If someone challenges us in our sin and we get defensive, that is a sign of immaturity that in order to grow in holiness, we have to reach a level of maturity in order to um, resolve conflict, in order to stay sexually pure in marriage, in order um, to have commitment or spiritual discernment. All of these things require Christ-like character. And how can we have Christ-like character if we won't go through the trials with patience and faith that God puts in front of us. And so the first question we can ask ourselves when it comes to, do I really trust God, is how do you respond when trials come your way? And again, not the easy trials, but the backbreaking, grieving, suffering trials, how do we respond? And whatever our answer to that is, will demonstrate whether or not we are trusting God. He continues in James chapter one, verse five, by saying something that, um, oh, sorry, I missed one thing. He does say, um, (laughs) my mom will laugh because I missed one of the most important parts. He says, but let patience have its perfect work. And I I struggle with patience and um, which is probably why I almost left it out. But when I was asked last night, what, uh, what was my word or scripture for the new year? I don't know if you guys do stuff like that. Um, I said this one, I said, James one, one through eight. Uh, for me this year was patience because I can get excited about stuff and passionate about serving the Lord. But when it comes to patience, um, sometimes when I'm frustrated with something, explain it to my mom. She always says, remember Luke, patience is your worst quality. Um, and so it's always encouraging to hear that from your mom, right? But, um, but it's good to have someone who's honest too. So, um, but when we talk about patience, sometimes we have to be patient just because we have to be patient. Um, one of my favorite places to eat right now is Taco Mexico. If you guys have had that next to Dairy Queen, really good. Um, but if there's a line of 30 people, I have to wait regardless. I don't have a choice. I can't just cut in front of everybody and get my tacos. I have to wait. I can wait joyfully or I can wait angrily, but I just have to wait. And sometimes we're in situations, we're in trials, we're in suffering, And there's nothing you can do about it. And so you have to wait regardless, but patience is something that we do in faith and it's something that we do joyfully. Some scripture or some translations don't even say patience, they say perseverance. Um, That we have to persevere through trials, not just because we have to or we have no choice, but while we're in the midst of it, we can be joyfully patient and wait on God because we trust him. 
But while we're doing this, one thing that can happen a lot of times is we can get confused. That when we're in the midst of trials, we can't see from God's perspective where we know we're being made like Christ. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're being made like Christ when we're in the midst of something that's causing suffering. And a lot of times we're looking for answers. And in verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea um, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. See, the good news is when we are in trials and we are in temptations, we're in persecution, God, we serve a God who wants to give you wisdom. He wants to give you clarity. doesn't mean he's going to give us every step or, or we're going to know all the answers to all of our questions. But he's promising us in the scripture, if we seek him, we'll find him. That Jesus says, if you knock, the door will be open. And so we serve a God who wants to give us wisdom in the midst of trials and in the midst of persecutions and the midst of hard times. But we have to do this in faith. And this is a famous scripture, if you'll turn with me to Proverbs 3. Um, But it's so good when it comes to what does it look like practically to live in faith? When we can't be looking for, we can't be holding on to our will and trying to fix things and at the same time be submitted to God's will. That would be called being double-minded. And that's what James 1 is saying, is if you're trying to figure things out on your own and trying to throw up a couple prayers to God, he says, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord because you're double-minded and you're unstable, not just in what you're asking for, but in all your ways. See, a lack of faith doesn't just affect one area of our life. Having a lack of faith will make you unstable in everything. And a lot of times, the reason why we don't feel unstable And everything is because the areas we feel stable in, we have control over. (laughs) So we don't feel unstable because we feel like we can control those areas. But when push comes to shove without faith, we will be unstable in all of our ways. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3 through 8, he says, "Um, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from him. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Again, we could do a whole another sermon breaking that scripture down, but it's so practical. You know, are are we going to be merciful? Are we going to be forgiving? Are we going to write the word of God in our hearts? Um, Are we going to trust the Lord and not lean on our own understanding? Are we going to be double-minded where we're trying to trust God and we're trying to trust ourselves all at the same time? Don't be wise in your own eyes. Humble yourself. Again, the whole aspect of this being a bondservant, being a slave requires humility for us to humble ourselves underneath the hand of God. So if you turn back with me to James chapter three, we'll go into our next section. That when it comes to faith, when it comes to trials, we have to believe that God does have our best interest at heart, that he is there to help us, that he is there to encourage us. Because Jesus says, you know, if a, if a son asks his father for um, bread, his father's not gonna give him a rock or give him a snake. That instead he's gonna give him what he needs. In the same way, Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father give all those the Holy Spirit for those who ask him? So there is an element of we have to be persistently pursuing God and asking him in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our suffering, in faith, and he will provide what we need. In verse nine, he continues to say, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation 
Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. You know, I think he uses the example of money here because it's something we can all relate to at some level. You need money to survive. But I don't think he's talking just about money. I want you to think about what do you feel rich in? Maybe we feel rich in family. Maybe we feel rich in money. Maybe we feel rich in our gifts or our talents. And anything that we feel rich in, we have to be quick to humble ourselves underneath God's hand. And um, I did a little uh, podcast with my sister this week, which was fun. And one of her scriptures that kind of brought her to Christ, which um, my mom had had shared with her, I mean, probably like a hundred times before she kind of discovered it for herself and then, you know, believed it. But um, it's a story of Gideon. And if you're familiar with the story of Gideon, God has, it's over 30,000 men that are going to go defeat the Midianites. And God tells them, Gideon, if I let you conquer the Midianites with these 30,000 men, you guys are going to take the glory and you're going to think your own strength um, uh, obtained this, this uh, victory. And so God ends up cutting the army about in half or even less. There's like 8,000 men left. And then God says, you know, this is too, still too many people. If I send you 8,000 men, you're still going to take the credit. So then he says, um, all of you who are go to the water and drink on this river. And the guys who drink like a, um, like a dog that lick the water, there's the ones that are going to stay. And the guys who drink the cup or the water with their hands are the guys that you're going to send home. Well, there ends up only being 300 men left in this entire army. And God says, okay, now that I've whittled you down to absolutely nothing, now you know, you'll know that the victory has come from me. See, a lot of times for us, when, when we are successful and we're trying to solve our own problems and we think we have the wisdom or we think we're spiritually gifted or it seems like the ministry is going well because of what we're doing, we end up taking all the credit that God has to end up humbling us, bringing us down to this identity of being a slave of Christ for us to really realize what matters and to live in faith. And I saw a poem this morning that um, is one of my favorites, but the, the main part of it is... Um, only what we will do for Christ will last. And I think that's something that's powerful that all of us need to recognize, whether it's physical wealth or spiritual wealth or whatever it is that we feel like we're wealthy in, is that our days are numbered. And I believe the Bible is clear on that, that God's appointed a time for a man to be born and a time to die. I don't, I'm not too concerned about dying early when, when I believe God has my time is up and my mission's fulfilled for whatever he's created me for. Um, he'll take me home. And until then, I'm gonna serve him, but I'm not worried about dying early because God has appointed us a time to be born and he's appointed us a time to die. So on earth, our days are numbered, but in eternity, our days are innumerable. And so we have an, a, a question or a, an opportunity to either invest in what is numbered, which is this life and our earthly talents and earthly riches, or we have an opportunity to invest in what's never gonna end eternity. And that's what we have to ask ourselves again, within trials, within temptations, are we focused on what's gonna last eternity or are we focused on the immediate gratification of doing what seems best for us in the moment and finally in verse 12 we'll close with this he says blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him let no let no one say when he is tempted i am tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, 
brings forth death. You know, the scripture is pretty straightforward, but there's two things that I think is so important that we grab from this is one, the power to endure temptation is love. That he says, um, those will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the way we endure temptation is because we love God more than we love sin. But if we love sin more than we love God, eventually that temptation for sin becomes too great for us and we give in to our own desire. The second thing is no one is responsible for your sin and no one is responsible for my sin but me. The Bible says that we are led away by our own desires and enticed. A lot of times we're blaming the devil and we're blaming our relatives and we're blaming the church for why we're sinning. And then no one is responsible for your sin and for my sin but ourselves. That we have to make the choice or we have to evaluate what do I really desire in this life? Is my desire my own or is my desire to be a slave, to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And that is going to be tested in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations, because when our emotions, when our pain, it's so so tangible that God isn't always as tangible as your pain and your suffering is. It's right there, it's in your body. And in those moments, we want to find temporary relief in the things that we desire. But God can bring us to a point where he transforms our hearts, transforms our mind, where we don't desire sin, but instead we actually do desire him, that we love him more than we love our sin. And I was thinking about one of my, old, my favorite um, desserts um, for a long time was um, Cold Stone. I don't know if you guys have had Cold Stone ice cream, but um, my favorite was Birthday Cake Remix. And they had the like little size, which was like it, and the middle size, which was love it, and the last size, which was gotta have it. And um, if you put a gotta have it bowl of um, birthday cake remix in front of me today, I would have no desire in the entire world to eat that because I can't eat dairy anymore. I can't eat ice cream. And so for me, seeing that bowl of ice cream equals death. There's no part of that that I want. I don't desire it. Now there's other things that I do desire that I could be tempted with that I would want to eat. But you know, that's exactly really how, how sin works, that God can get us to the point where he's working on our desires, he's working on our heart, that when sin's presented to us, it's gross. I don't want that because that's gonna lead me to death. That's gonna separate me from God. That's gonna hurt my family. That's gonna hurt those people around me. And ultimately, again, it, it's not, it has nothing to benefit me because I am now a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And I saw this question um, My wife and I were talking about this a little bit between services, but I think anybody who's married in the room, I would challenge you to ask each other this question. I saw this, yeah, just this week, but this couple was doing like a marriage counseling thing online and they were talking about a great practice is to ask one another, what do you think is the number one threat to our marriage? For you personally, not like together, what do we feel like um, is our hardest issue? But what is the one thing I could be tempted with? What is one desire I have that would be detrimental and would harm our marriage? And that might be hard to confess to one another, but again, what is our desires? What are the things that, that could lead us astray? Maybe right now, there's no bowl of ice cream right in front of us. So we don't really, uh, it's, it's not really pertinent right now. But again, Satan knows how to tempt us and he knows when to tempt us. And there's power in confession and there's power in prayer that God would mold and shape our desires ultimately to become more like him. Because I think the, the, the most deadly part of temptation and desire and sin is secrecy. If we keep things secret, if we keep things hidden, that's where the power of sin and the power of Satan can get into our lives and we can make decisions um, that will totally um, move the trajectory of our life and, and make our life completely different.
So I just want to close um, with this, is when we think about faith and we think about desires, um, I think James 1 lays out really well of how we can understand, do we trust God? Do I trust God? Do you trust God? Well, how do you do with trials and temptations? What happens when trials and persecutions and these various trials come into your life? How do we respond? That tells us whether or not we trust God or not. Number two, um, how do we do with, with patience and how do we do with wisdom? When we're confused, how do we respond? Do we lean on our own understanding or do we come to the word of God? Number three, are we investing in our earthly talents? Are we trying to be successful ourselves? Or are we humbling ourselves as the poor man and letting God exalt us in due time? That tells us, you know, are we trusting God? And finally, this last one, what do we desire? What are the things that you desire most in this life? Is it eternal things or is it physical things? And all of those um, pictures will demonstrate, do we trust God when things really come to sh- uh, push comes to shove? And this is in the homework session if, section if you want to read this more. Got some out there. Don't be afraid to grab one. But... Um, you know, in Hebrews chapter three and four, he talks about Israel and their being led from Egypt to the promised land. And he uses the promised land as an example of heaven. And these Israelites who were delivered from Egypt, they saw the power of God. They were fed manna in the wilderness. The water came from a rock. They had all these things happen to them. But when push came to shove in trusting God, they didn't trust him. God had done a lot of things in their life, but that didn't mean that they trusted him. And then... In Hebrews 4, it says, none of them entered into the promised land because of hardness of heart and a lack of faith. And for each one of us, sometimes it can be hard to admit when we're not trusting God because we never want to admit that as Christians or people who go to church or people who read our Bible. We don't want to say, oh, I'm not, I'm not trusting God. Look at all the things God has provided or look at all the things God has done in our life. But God isn't that interested in doing things for you and I. He's interested in building a relationship that we would trust him And we would build a love for him so that we would be able to endure temptation. So one encouragement um, I think would be great in this new year to evaluate is, is our relationship with God, are we confident in that just because of what God does for us? Because God did a lot for Israel. And all those things were real. None of that stuff that they make up. But at the end of the day, their heart never trusted God, no matter how much God actually did for them. And for us to evaluate, how do I deal with confusion? How do I deal with trials? How do I deal with temptation? How do I deal with the talents and the gifts that God has given me? And those things are a barometer, according to James, of whether, how we can evaluate. Do we trust God or are we still double-minded of trying to trust God and trust ourselves um, all at the same time? So Father God, I just thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. I thank you that we serve a God who is willing and able to help us, Lord. You're a God who's willing to change our desires. And if we would just ask you for wisdom, Lord, that you would give it to us. God, we know all of us at one point or another are double-minded and get stuck on our own thoughts, Father. But we just thank you that all you ask us to do is confess and to admit that we're sinning, to admit that we're relying on ourselves, to admit that we're, we're worshiping ourselves rather than worshiping you, Lord. And in that moment, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to renew our heart and to give us new desires, God. So I just pray that we would live not in a facade of who we want to be, Lord, but that we could truly live in the reality of, of who we are and who you're making us to be in Jesus Christ. And I ask you these things in Jesus' name.